Thank you, Angela, for casting a little bit of vision uh, for what, what's already been happening. Really excited to get to have a front row seat for what God's going to do through the Christmas program this year. Uh, what a joy to be able to partner with God in all that he is doing in our world. That's a privilege. It's a privilege that only human beings actually get to have. Nothing else in all creation gets to join God in what he's doing. Uh, we've actually been reading a letter written by Peter, and uh, his intention is to remind the church of this privilege. In the midst of troubling circumstances, he's reminding them of the privilege that they get to have to partner with God to work against the dehumanizing forces that the world uh, confronts us with. Right, you, you look at the, 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 the letter that Peter has written, First Peter, and you see him addressing various dehumanizing forces, forces that seek to consume and, and, and pull apart humanity, forces like the Roman government, which leveraged violence to bring about their way of life and tore people apart, in fact, desired to pull the church apart these dehumanizing forces. After that, Peter gets into the way the economy was seeking to pull people apart, enslaving people, dehumanizing them. And he tries to address and say, here's how to respond to the dehumanizing forces that you're experiencing. Throughout the letter, he's talking about the dehumanizing maelstrom of culture that's swirling all around them as they've come out of the pagan culture and the pagan views of life. He says, those those ways of life, those, those desires you formerly were steeped in, they seek to destroy you. In fact, what does he say? He says later in chapter 5, he says that Satan is, is prowling like a lion, seeking to devour you. There are these dehumanizing forces. And Peter is hoping that he can encourage the church to confront them in the manner of Christ. I might say it this way, in the most fully human way. There are dehumanizing forces swirling all around us, and Peter is calling the church to remember that there's a fully human way to respond. And it does us good to remember ourselves, to take notes of the way that Peter is responding to the swirling circumstances, because certainly those circumstances have not disappeared, at least not fully. I would say that God has worked through the church to, to, to bring uh, humanity back from the brink in many places in our world. But certainly we're still in this swirling circumstances of dehumanizing forces. So we have to take note of how Peter asks us to respond in Jesus. We have to take note because the, the response that Peter reminds us of is not the only response. We have to realize that in all of history, many philosophies, many worldviews, many religions have come to bear trying to respond to the dehumanizing forces. It might take uh, a second to sort of uh, separate the, the wheat from the chaff on that and, and try to focus in on what are these moments where people are trying to respond to the dehumanizing forces. And sometimes it's actually best for us to look at the, the moments where humanity was at its worst to see how are people responding to dehumanization. Maybe the 20th century calls for our attention that way. Here, here's a statistic for you. There are more violent deaths in the 20th century than in all other centuries of humanity combined. 
Take the rest of human history, add up the violent deaths that people suffered, and there's more violent deaths that take place in the 20th century. Dehumanizing forces swirling about the globe, fascism, and so forth and so on. And so we might take a look and say, how do different people respond? One response that has my attention this week is a response from a group of philosophers that called themselves the existentialists. And many of them thought of themselves exactly that way as responding to the dehumanizing forces about them. One in particular, Jean-Paul Sartre, who actually coins the phrase existentialism for us, believed that his work was in confrontation with the forces of the Nazis, for instance, as Jean-Paul Sartre was French and lived through the occupation of, uh, uh, of the Nazis in France, in particular in Paris, where Jean-Paul Sartre lived and worked. You might take note of the fact that he was allowed to continue to live and work. That might be a red flag. If you're keeping track of red flags, Jean-Paul Sartre was allowed to flourish in his work, and Nazi officers were attending his plays and his lectures and so forth. There is a red flag. Um, and I think we might be able to put our finger on what that red flag is. But he did posture himself this way. He thought of himself as someone who was working against dehumanizing forces. In fact, in 1944, his most famous work, perhaps, uh, is, is, is put on display in the stages of Paris. It's, uh, it's a, a play called Oui Clos in the French. Um, that's the most French I can give you. We clo. It, uh, it's translated no exit. It, it really means like shut door. No exit. And it's a very, very famous play. In it, he imagines these three people have gone to hell. And they get to hell. And they're, they're sort of on edge, as you imagine you might be if you're in hell. They're a little bit edgy. And they're worried about what's coming next. And they're wondering what will be hell for them. What will it be like? And so they get there, and they're, they're noticing a, a, a rather startling lack of torture devices. Uh, really, they just have some comfortable furniture, and that's about it. And as they lean into their situation and begin to talk with one another, they, they start to come to a, a rather depressing realization that there, there are no torturers because they are each other's torturer. That the expectations that they carry for one another will be torture for each other. Uh, each of them has arrived in hell for a, a, a very startling and dehumanizing reason. And we don't have to get into all the reasons that they've arrived in this moment because the actual thing that Jean-Paul Sartre is calling for them to do is to stop caring about what each other thinks. There's, there's actually a moment where one of the main characters could easily escape hell. There is an exit. The exit, the moment he could leave, is if he just didn't care what the other people thought. But he's worried that they'll think he's a coward if he leaves hell. The door is open. He could leave. But he, he can't bring himself to. He cares too much what other people think. And so he says this very, very famous phrase. He says, hell is other people. Hell is other people. Now, now it, it, it's complex what he's actually getting at, but, but Jean-Paul Sartre is beginning to put on display for us what he thinks is the problem. He thinks we're not living authentically enough. 
He thinks we care so much about what everybody else thinks that we're not living of our own volition, that we're not determining for ourselves how to live. He says, instead, we, we are living in bad faith. We, we, we care about what our neighbor thinks, and so we live according to those expectations. We think there's a God out there who, who has decided what is right and wrong instead of deciding for ourselves. He wants us to live authentically and live for ourselves in that way. And he says, if that happened, we could live into our freedom as human beings and we could exit hell altogether. He thinks authentic living is the answer to the dehumanizing forces that are swirling around. But the more you work it out, the more you realize that this is actually a troubling echo of Genesis 3. What is he asking for? He's asking for us to determine right and wrong for ourselves. In fact, he's actually riding on the coattails of Nietzsche and saying, really the solution is for us to become gods ourselves. He thinks the answer to the dehumanizing forces is to rise above what we have settled for as human beings and become like the gods, deciding what is right and what is wrong and not caring for our neighbors and what our neighbors expect of us. He thinks if we could only do that, if we could only do that, we would be truly human. I note the way that this grates against all that Peter is reminding us of in 1 Peter. I note the way that this grates against all that Jesus is saying with his life when he teaches us how to be human. No one on an island like Jean-Paul Sartre would like us to be, but living in a body of believers, expressing the humanity that we're privileged to possess. Look at Genesis 3. Hear the echoes of Jean-Paul Sartre in this sense of no exit, the serpent comes along and says, you could really have real life if you just stopped listening to God, stop caring about what God had to say. The serpent said, you, you, you could exit this, 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 uh, this cage you're in. You could become like the gods. What does the serpent say in Genesis 3 verse 5? For God knows that when you eat it, this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And at first blush, we think, what's so wrong with this? But we realize that in, in this context, what the, what the author is actually telling us in Genesis 3 is that they're trying to replace God. Instead of living according to God's design, they're trying to become God themselves, deciding what is right and wrong for themselves and living authentically to their own self-referential expectations. They're curved in on themselves, just exactly the way Jean-Paul Sartre wants them to be, just exactly the way he wants them to care only for their own sensibilities. That's his response to the dehumanizing forces of the Nazis and others during the 20th century. But what about, what about God's response? Because Jean-Paul Sartre is famous for saying that the... the the, the universe is empty of meaning. The universe is empty of justice. The universe is empty of right and wrong. It's only what we put into play that exists. This is why he calls his philosophy existentialism. But of course, this is the wrong starting place, isn't it? 
To, to believe that the universe is devoid of meaning unless we bring it to bear, that the universe is devoid of, of, of purpose or right and wrong or morality or beauty or anything unless we bring it to bear, is to say we should become like the gods, like we should become like God. But what we need to realize is that God has a vision, a humanizing vision how to live our lives, how to come into alignment with what is meaningful, how to come in alignment with what is beautiful, alignment with what is right, not producing it ourselves. In fact, these dehumanizing forces of Genesis 3 begin to tear apart relationships right away. You think through the narrative of Genesis 3, and what do you see? You see their relationship with God breaking apart immediately. They, they, they go and hide from him. Rather than coming into alignment with God's rhythm and walking with him in the cool of the evening, they're immediately seeing that torn apart. What do they do when they're hiding from God? They begin to put together clothing for themselves, this ramshackle set of fig leaves to cover up their shame. They have broken relationship with themselves. Immediately, this dehumanizing forces are coming to bear they're, they're broken in their relationship with God. They're broken in their relationship with themselves. And what happens when God comes along and says, where are you? Adam immediately says, well, the woman that you gave me gave me this fruit and I ate it. He's ready to throw her under the bus. Note that this is actually before God has said anything about what we call the curse. Their relationships are torn asunder. It's dehumanizing the way that they have grasped at something that was beyond them. Where they have tried to make themselves the definition, they have actually become less than what they were intended to be. And in fact, the, the full measure of the brokenness is that their relationship with the earth is broken. For, for Eve, she experiences the pain in childbirth. For, for Adam, we see he can't make things grow. All of these things are broken. And Jean-Paul Sartre would, would say, listen, there's only one thing to do put ourselves on the throne, and get after it. Of course, the problem being, who's the most powerful on which throne and whose vision will come to bear? The 20th century shows us that in this type of situation, strong men come out on top, and they'll tear anyone apart to get there. Think of Stalin. How does Stalin get power? He gets power by tearing his friends to bits. And once he has power, what does he think will happen? He thinks his friends will try to tear him to bits. So he continues this dehumanizing cycle. It just spins out of control. And Jean-Paul Sartre cannot see beyond his own nose to know that he's actually in alignment with that particular vision. To put humanity on the throne as his solution. No, instead, we should eschew Jean-Paul Sartre's idea that there is no justice apart from human effort. There is no morality, beauty, meaning, purpose. And instead, we should realize that there's always been justice flowing from the heart of God. There's always been meaning and purpose and beauty flowing from the heart of God, and it's our privilege to join in with it. Look at Genesis chapter 12. As sin spiraled downward and they filled the earth with violence is what they tell us in Genesis chapter 6. We get to the very breaking point where one last family is hanging by a thread but they can't have children. 
One last family that had been honoring God is actually turning away from God and there's no children left to have. And God steps in and he blesses Abraham to be a blessing. Not to swallow it down himself, but to to send it onwards. What does God say to Abraham? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Our relationship will be restored. And as a great nation, your relationship with yourself, your identity will be firmly fixed in the context of your relationship with me. And what does he say? I will make your name great. This is more about identity. You will be a blessing. This is actually God announcing for all to hear that he has the intention of reversing the curse. He's saying, I'm going to, resp- I'm going to restore your relationship with me. I promise I'm going to restore your relationship with yourself. You've been scrambling, putting yourself on the throne, and you don't even know what it means to be great. I'm going to restore your relationship with yourself. I'm going to make you a blessing to others. I'm going to restore your relationship to others. And you'll know that this blessing of Abraham comes with land. What was the fourth broken relationship? Our relationship to the earth. God had always intended to to make all things new, to bring it back into alignment with his heart. This is actually what we're seeing First Peter, the apostle Peter, remind us of. Because Peter knows that the church is nothing less than the multinational fulfillment of the mission of God. When, when God promises in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to make them a blessing and that, that they're their nation will be a blessing to all the nations, Peter knows that it's coming to bear in the church. The church is not plan B or C. It is God restoring humanity to their place of privilege of coming into alignment with his heart against all the dehumanizing forces that there are out there. This is the multinational fulfillment of the mission of God, the diversity therein. See how Peter knows it. We've gotten to the point where we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, finally, all of you, be like-minded. You you may have different forces pulling you in different directions. They may want to pull your community apart. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Maybe someone's coming from a different background. We started this series by noting that there is a a, a collision of cultures happening here. People coming out of the pagan culture, people who have been steeped in the synagogue. Be sympathetic. Love one another, compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You can't tell me that Peter doesn't have Genesis in mind. Peter was steeped in the scriptures. He had come from the synagogue. He had walked with Jesus, the very word of God. Peter knows the scriptures. When he talks about blessing, he certainly understands that this is in the the stream of what God is intending to do, bringing a blessing to this group of people so that they can be a blessing to others. What is this vision? This is a vision of restored relationships. Like-minded, sympathetic, love, compassionate, humble. All relationships restored. And remember, this is in the face of opposition. This is in the face 
of the dog-eat-dog world of the Roman Empire. This is in the face of the economic pressures that were tearing people apart. He's actually just asked women in particular to, to be very sensitive about wearing uh, jewelry and, and, and adorning themselves in a way that would separate them from the rest of the community, that would put them in a position of, uh, of, of sort of social leverage. He's asking them, no, 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 come shoulder to shoulder with one another. This is all happening in the face of the dehumanizing forces that were swirling about them. We've, we may see the same in our world today. Uh, not uniformly spread about the globe, but certainly as we look to various pockets of the earth, we see these dehumanizing forces come to bear. And we might ask ourselves, like many other generations have asked themselves, what is to be done about it? There, there is this, this idea that maybe it's simply a matter of just crushing the dehumanizing forces? What if it was just about victory? What if it was just about power over those powers? Well, we have a somewhat unlikely ally in this. Nietzsche himself says, be careful when you fight the monster, lest you become the monster. To, to wrestle against the dehumanizing powers using their weapons is to risk becoming dehumanized yourself, simply replacing who's on the throne with another human being, with another set of human visions, won't do it. Well, what about them simply withdrawing from society? That, that certainly has been a vision from time to time, even within the church. Just if we could just sequester ourselves, something like the Qumran society, or, or maybe in a modern sense, kind of like the Mennonite Amish vision of just like, let's just separate ourselves a bit. Well, this seems to, to, it seems to grate against Scripture to a certain degree. Not in the sense of not allowing those forces to influence you. That's certainly good. Peter's calling for all throughout his letter is saying, remember, there's these forces that are seeking to tear you apart. Don't let them do it. Don't have anything to do with it. Certainly the spirit of the Amish in that way is, is commendable. But there's this. And I'm actually not saying that the Amish don't do this part. There's this context in Scripture, Jeremiah 29. We love to quote it. I know the plans I have for you. Well, let's ask ourselves what those plans entail. The, the prosper you, bless you. So you can be a blessing. In fact, I know it because look in verse seven, which comes just before our favorite verse, right? Right before 29.11, what does it say? As these people who have been put into exile in Babylon, these people who are, who are faced with dehumanizing forces daily are having to decide what to do. Should we try to overcome it with might? Should we simply separate from it? Should we just join it? What should we do? What does God call them to do? He says, also, in this letter to the people who are in exile, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Lean into this world bringing God's blessing to bear on it. Uh, some translations, probably the best translation says, seek the shalom of the city that you're in. So, so Peter, who has 
repeatedly said in his letter that his church that he's writing to, this group of churches, are in exile. Is remembering his people in exile in Babylon and remembering that they aren't to simply wait it out, self-preserve, find a safe place and ride out the storm. Instead, they're to join God in bringing the blessing to bear on the earth. Why? Because this is truly human. Because this is the fully human response. How do I know it? Because this is how Jesus responded. The Jesus who had equality with God, but did not think of it as something to use for his own advantage, instead came to bear on earth in the middle of our mess. He didn't wait for it to, the storm to pass. He came to, to the middle of the mess, himself becoming an exile and a refugee, himself being cast out of the city on our behalf. Peter is using this as his paradigm. He has Genesis, or sorry, Jeremiah 29 in mind, yes, but he has it in mind through the lens of Jesus. What does he say, in fact, in, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, just like our parents before us, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against you, right? Those are dehumanizing forces. It's not just this mistake you made that you shouldn't have made. It's a power that you're giving way to. It's seeking to destroy you. It's prowling about. There's these dehumanizing forces, and he's saying, face it like the truly human faced it. Face it the way Jesus did. There's these sinful desires which weigh a war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. He has a vision for the multinational fulfillment of the mission of God pressing outwards. A bridgehead of the way things ought to be. A bridgehead of where relationships are functioning the way relationships are supposed to function deferring to one another rather than preferring one's self. Self-denial instead of self-actualization. Fully human vision for how to confront the powers that dehumanize our world. It's a shock to our system. It was certainly a shock to Peter's. We'll have to remember that. That when he says, listen, to this you were called, as he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and following. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps, to follow after the fully human being. He, he actually says the same again in chapter 3, verse 18, in the section that we're in, and again in the first verse of chapter 4. Again and again and again, Peter is saying, here's the paradigm for how to respond to the dehumanizing forces that are swirling about you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And yes, it was a shock to Peter's system. Think of the first time Jesus said, here's how I'm going to do this. Think of the first time Jesus said in Peter's earshot, here's what I'm going to do about the way this world is tearing itself apart. He said, I'm going to let it do it to me. I'm going to absorb the pain. I'm not going to simply avoid it. 
and I'm not going to simply try to crush it. I'm going to absorb it. Not repaying evil for evil, like it says in this passage that we're looking at. Instead, responding with a blessing. You think of the way Peter responded the first time he said, never. Never. Essentially, he said, over my dead body. He actually rebukes Jesus. He uses that word, rebukes Jesus. What is it that rebukes Jesus in this world? What does the word Satan actually mean? That's not a name. It's a title. It's a title referring to all that is opposed to what God intends to do. So that's why Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Not because Satan had possessed Peter. Not because Satan had appeared standing on Peter's shoulder. No, because Peter had bought into Satan's vision for what to do next. Peter had a different vision in mind for how to respond to the dehumanizing forces of this world. That's why Peter needed to spend so much time with Jesus. That's why we need to spend so much time with Jesus. We have to be steeped in the story he's telling because there's all kinds of other stories that are trying to grab a hold of us. And those other stories ultimately will tear us apart. There's only one story that will make all things new. And you think about Peter, what's the next thing that happens? Well, Jesus goes to the cross. And Peter spends time cowering at the feet of a 12-year-old girl around the fire. He's so afraid. And he runs for it. Now he weeps. Something's happening. Something's happening inside him. He weeps. He's recognizing just how far off he is. The scriptures tell us that he had followed Jesus at a distance. And that Jesus had looked across the courtyard at him after he had denied Jesus a third time. And then Peter wept when Peter recognized how far his vision was out of alignment with Jesus' vision. And then you see Peter at Pentecost. And he says, listen, the one that God sent, you crucified him. But this is the one that God sent to rescue us. Peter begins to catch the vision for the spiritual benefits of what Christ has done up against the dehumanizing forces of our world. And then what? And then Peter follows after Jesus. Jesus told him it would happen. John chapter 21, he said, listen, you used to go wherever you wanted. You used to live such an authentic life. You used to think maybe hell was other people and that your heaven would be denying them and putting yourself on the... You used to do anything you wanted. But someday someone's going to actually lead you where you don't want to go. He follows after Jesus. He has finally fully absorbed the humanizing vision of God. The vision that says from the very beginning, God is going to do something to bring beauty and justice and goodness and meaning to bear on the, on the earth. What is the first thing God tells us about himself? He says he's a creator. In the beginning, God created. And what was the earth like when God began to create? It says now the earth was formless. A better word maybe for us would be chaotic. Just chaos. 
There was no order to it. It was empty. It was dark. But there, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then he set about bringing order to the chaos, filling that which was empty. Read chapter 1. He forms the dry land and he fills it. He forms the firmament and he fills it. He forms the human being and he fills the human being with purpose. What is the purpose? What is the joy? What is the humanizing vision? It's to carry the image of God forward, to fill the earth with it against that which is chaotic, against that which is empty, void, against the darkness. We bring the image of God to bear. We carry it with us because he fills us with his image. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. It says, Jesus fills everything in every way. That includes you and I. It's not us bringing a vision of humanity to bear on a, a, a universe devoid of meaning. It is us partnering with God to allow this beautiful vision that he has to spill out. We walk to the very gospel's edge with him, and then we let this vision for meaning and purpose and beauty spill out for the good of others. In this, there is joy. In this, coming into alignment with our very design and our very purpose, there is victory. What does victory look like? Romans chapter 8 says, here's what your destiny is. To be formed in the image of Jesus. Peter might say to follow after him. Like he says in chapter 2, follow in his steps. This is victory over the dehumanizing forces. To now be shoulder to shoulder with the fully human one, Jesus himself. This is our response to the dehumanizing forces that swirl around us. Imitation of Christ, a, a, a bringing to bear, a leveraging of God's vision for life. He's making all things do, new, and he's inviting us to join him. In fact, that's what he's been doing from the very beginning. He tells the animals, hey, be fruitful and multiply. But only human beings does he give his image to. From the very beginning, he's been saying, I'm inviting you into a heck of an adventure. I'm inviting you into full humanity. Join me. It's a real blessing. It's the abundant life. It's the abundant life, shoulder to shoulder with me against all the dehumanizing forces that are swirling around. Let's do this. Make all things new. It's possible. I know it's possible because Peter was real far away from it, following Jesus at a distance, and then he embodied it. What was that? Peter was discipled. Of course, he's a disciple. He was discipled in the way of Jesus. You and I can be too. We can be steeped in that story. We can more and more fully respond to the dehumanizing forces of this world in the way of Jesus. So we ask ourselves a couple of questions. One, 
What is one corner of my heart that I have reserved for myself, reserved for a different storyline, a different way of life? In what small ways am I still holding on to a corner of the throne for myself? And how can I give way to Jesus in those spaces of my life? In what ways am I responding to the dehumanizing pressures of this earth, this world, in a way that is out of alignment with his? How can I give way to him? And the last question we'll finish with. Where is God working? Where can I join him? I don't have to conjure it up. I don't have to self-actualize it. I don't have to produce it. This universe is imbued with meaning and purpose and beauty. I just have to join in with the God who brought it to bear. So I ask myself this simple question, not frantically spinning about wondering what to do next. I simply ask myself, where is God at work and how can I join him? That's what we want to ask this week as Peter asked himself many times. Lord, we are so thankful that we don't have to do this on our own and so thankful that you are making all things new, working against the dehumanizing forces of the earth and so thankful that you have invited us into it, that your vision has always included keeping us close to your heart and joining you in filling the earth with goodness, spilling out with blessing for those around us. Your vision has always included bringing light, just as Jesus is the light of the world. Your, your, your vision has always included humanity bringing order to this chaos in your way, mirroring your heart. We pray for that this week in your son's name. Amen.